20 years ago, um, I was preparing to stand before a judge. It all started with a handful of relatively innocent speeding tickets, and then came the big one. Sometime in the summer of 2003, I was clocked driving 99 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone on 285 in Atlanta, Georgia. And I really wish I had a cool story about it. I, I wish that, you know, I was escaping this international band of terrorists that were trying to attack me for some reason, or that I was driving someone urgently to the hospital. But the truth was, I just wasn't paying attention. And I wish that I could tell you that I was in some awesome car, like a 1970 Dodge Charger, or a 1967 Shelby Mustang GT500, or a Ferrari, or a Lamborghini. But the embarrassing truth is I was driving a 15-passenger van. <laughs> That's a true story. And so, Weeks leading up to that court date, I am terrified, I'm brainstorming, I'm preparing speeches in my head on how I can get out of this. I'd already accumulated a number of points on my license, and unless the judge was incredibly merciful, I'm gonna leave court that day having my driver's license suspended. And so I put on a suit, might have been one of the last times that I put on an actual suit and tie. Put on a suit and tie, stood before the judge, have my speech ready to deliver. This is going to be the moment when I stand before a judge and appeal for mercy and I receive mercy. But the truth is that nobody really stands before a judge from a position of authority and strength. It seems like all of us stand before a judge from a position of weakness. And so as I'm standing before him, I don't even get a chance to say a word of my speech. I essentially answer one or two questions. He bangs the little gavel thing and sends me on my way, and eventually I lose my driver's license. Nobody, like I said, nobody really stands before a judge from a position of strength. Something about that experience exposes your weakness. Almost nobody is an exception to that except for Jesus. If you're not already there, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 21, verse 23. It's going to help you if you are have a Bible open or a Bible app open where you can follow along as we go through the passage. Our, our normal practice here at Pocosin Baptist Church is to take a book of the Bible and just walk through it and try to understand what God is saying to us through His Word. So if you have a Bible, go there so you can follow along. And just to set the context of what's happening at this point in Matthew's Gospel, um, Jesus had a busy Monday in Jerusalem. We saw that story last week. Jesus entered the city. He drove out the money changers. He welcomed in the, the weak and the, and the ailing and the lame and the blind, and he healed them. And then he had kind of a brief interaction with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And then he went back to Bethany, where he and his disciples are spending the night during the week of Passover in Jerusalem. 
Now it is Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning of Good Friday week. The very week when Jesus is going to die on the cross is Tuesday morning. He's entering into the city of Jerusalem again with his disciples. He's heading towards the temple. And as he, you can just imagine him and his disciples walking towards the temple courts. And there's an official delegation of religious leaders marching to meet him. It's clear from the text, and I'll show you why in a moment, that this is not some sort of an informal conversation with a group of peers. The men approaching Jesus in this encounter are attempting to put Jesus on trial. This is, of course, not the official trial of Jesus. Think of it like an informal sort of pre-trial, but, but every trial or most trials will have a certain number of basic elements. So, for example, in a trial, you'll have an accusation, a defense, a deliberation, a verdict, and a sentence. And in this interaction with Jesus and the religious leaders, You'll see as he is accused, you'll listen to him offer a defense, you'll watch as his accusers deliberate, then in a surprise twist, Jesus is the one who renders the verdict and pronounces the sentence. But as we look at this text today, here's the big idea I want you to understand. As Jesus', Jesus authority is on display when his authority is on trial. Unlike me, who appeared in weakness before a judge, Jesus, when his authority is questioned, when his authority is on trial, when he is accused, his authority shines all the brighter. So we'll see that as we walk through the five scenes in our text this morning. First of all, consider with me the accusation. The accusation. Look at verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, on the surface, this is a valid question. The chief priests, uh, these guys have authority over the temple complex. It's their job to kind of oversee the temple. But as we'll soon notice, they don't approach Jesus with a serious desire to learn. They are approaching him with an accusation. They're accusing him of not having authority. We know that because Mark 11 verse 28 tells us that after Jesus cleansed the temple, we saw that last week, the religious leaders were looking for a way to destroy him. On Wednesday, so that's the day after this morning's text, on Wednesday, we learn in, uh, in Matthew's gospel that th these same religious leaders are plotting to kill Jesus. Mark eleven twenty seven tells us that in addition to uh, the, the folks that are there confronting Jesus, Matthew talks about the chief priests and the elders. Mark eleven twenty seven tells us that the scribes were often present, were also present. So those three groups of people uh, consisted of the Sanhedrin, which was like the Jewish Supreme Court. This is not some sort of an informal conversation. This is a trial setting. And it's Jesus' authority that's being questioned. Does Jesus really have authority? 
Accusations often expose our weakness, don't they? How many political careers have been wrecked because of an accusation? Even if eventually the person is exonerated and the accusations are considered to be unfounded, a political career can still be absolutely wrecked by an accusation. Accusations show us our weakness, but not with Jesus. One of the things we're going to watch as Jesus begins responding to these Pharisees is that the more they push and prod, the more in control he appears to be. His authority is on display even as he is accused. If you're gathering with us this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that this is a safe place for you to be open and honest about your questions regarding Jesus' authority. One of the things you're going to notice in our text this morning is that Jesus doesn't freak out when people ask questions. Jesus responds with dignity, with grace, with care, with firmness. So we would say to you, if you have questions about this Jesus, listen to Jesus. Listen to, listen to what he says. Listen to how he responds and take it seriously and consider who this man really is. If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I would just encourage you, don't be too concerned when people question Jesus' authority. Maybe that bothers you. Why is it that so many people don't accept who Jesus is? Listen, if people who saw his miracles and heard his teaching rejected him, it'll make sense when people today who haven't seen his miracles or haven't heard his voice reject him too. So don't let it bother you. And to the Christians, I would also remind you that even though Jesus is rejected now, there is coming a day when he will be glorified. It is not your job to defend Jesus as if he needed defense. It is your job to proclaim him. I want to remind you as well, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will often find yourself falsely accused just as Jesus was. Jesus says, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. So don't be bent out of sorts when people misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. Just love them and respond as best as you can. So first, Jesus is accused. Let's consider the second scene in our text this morning, and that's the defense. Again, it's common in a trial after someone makes an accusation, there is some sort of a defense that is made, and Jesus, too, is going to offer a defense to these Pharisees, but it's not going to look the way you might think. Look at verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? I want you to think for a moment about what Jesus could have said in his defense or what he could have done in his defense. Jesus could have brought a host of exhibits that demonstrate his authority. The lame can walk, the blind can see, the mute can speak, the dead are alive. But he doesn't do that. 
Jesus could have brought expert witnesses to speak on his behalf, like the angel who called him Emmanuel, which means God with us, like the voice of the Father who spoke at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, like the demons who said, we know who you are, the Holy Son of God, like Peter himself who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, but Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus responds with a question. It might seem at first that Jesus is avoiding the Pharisees' question, but his question is actually a brilliant defense. Here's his question. Where did John the Baptist's ministry come from? Was it man-made or heaven-sent? Here's why Jesus' response is so brilliant. The answer to both questions is the same. Where did Jesus get his authority from? Was it from heaven or from earth? From heaven. And where did John the Baptist get his ministry from? Was it from heaven or from earth? The answer to both questions is the same. And the unbelief that kept the religious leaders from recognizing John's ministry is the same unbelief that's keeping them from recognizing Jesus' ministry. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear me carefully. We're tempted sometimes to think I would believe if God would just prove it to me. God, show me a sign. Speak to me in an audible voice. Do something miraculous. If you do this, then I'll believe in you. But you know what Jesus often does in response to that sort of question? He says, I'm not going to give you something new. I want you to believe in something that I've already done. Look back to that. In the same way, Jesus does not answer the Pharisees' question. He points them back to what God had already done through John the Baptist. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would plead with you, don't wait for God to show you a sign. Read his word. Read his word. Specifically, I would encourage you, you know, this is a a big book. And if you've never spent a lot of time in your Bible, that's okay. I would just encourage you to start in a place like the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark and learn about Jesus. If you're not really even sure where to start with that, I would encourage you to talk to one of our pastors after the service. Pastors, elders, would you just hold your hand up just for a second so everybody can see where you guys are. Hold your hand up real high so you can see. Look around. If if you're thinking about someone to talk to, there's our pastors. And a little cute boy over there who's also got his hand up too. Good job, buddy. Aspiring pastor maybe. So those men that raised their hands... Those are our pastors, okay? If you, you're really struggling with this and you want to learn more, talk to any of those guys or me after the service, and we or someone will sit down with you and walk through something like Christianity Explained, which over the course of six weeks just explains who Jesus is and why it matters. It's okay to be here this morning and say, I don't really get it, but I want to. You're in the right place. And we'd love to help you. But still, the main point that we learn from this phase of Jesus' trial is this. Jesus is still in control. 
The religious leaders come to Jesus asking him questions, but Jesus makes demands. It kind of reminds me of Dwight Schrute, his KGB knock-knock joke in the office where he says, Viva, ask the questions. Jesus is like, I'm going to ask the questions. It's not up to you guys. I'm an authority. All right, third scene of the trial is the deliberation. So in a jury trial, after hearing the final arguments, the jury will retire to a private location, and they discuss the case, and then they reach a verdict. That's kind of what I envision here. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question with a question, and they kind of say, wait just a second. And they fade into the bushes. And just imagine bushes there. They're fading into the bushes. And then they have a little side conversation. We've got to figure out how to respond. Let's deliberate. Look at verse 25, the middle of verse 25. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So Jesus on Tuesday, or on Monday rather, entered the city of Jerusalem and he's flipping over tables. Guess what? He's still flipping over tables today. The tables are turned because the Pharisees approached Jesus trying to trap him and now they're the ones caught in a trap. What's the trap? Jesus has asked us this question about John the Baptist's authority. If we say that that authority came from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, well, did you hear when he said in John 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If John came from heaven, why didn't you believe him? And why didn't you believe what he said about me? But if they say that John's ministry came from man, then they'll anger the crowd who really believes that John was a prophet. And then the text tells us that the reason they will not even speak truthfully about what they believe in response to Jesus' question is because they're slaves to the fear of man. The fear of man. What is the fear of man? It's an unhealthy preoccupation with the approval of other people. That's the fear of man. An unhealthy preoccupation with the approval of other people. Why, the Bible says in Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Why is the fear of man a snare? Because you will obey whatever you fear. You will obey whatever you fear. Let me ask you a question, dear brother, sister, friend. Whose approval matters the most to you? Whose disapproval would absolutely crush you? Whoever that person is, you will revolve your life around pleasing that person or those people. The religious leaders were afraid of the crowds. Verse 46 says the same thing. 
It doesn't mean that they walk around terrified of the, the crowds of people. It means that they care so much about the approval of the crowds that they are unwilling to even speak truthfully in fears that they might lose their approval. They cower in weakness because they're slaves to the fear of man. Perhaps there are some in this room that are sitting on the fence in your relationship with Jesus because you're struggling with the same fears. Maybe you're thinking, well, what will my friends think if I'm really serious about my walk with Jesus? What will my brother think, my sister think, my mom or my dad or my adult children? What will my boyfriend say? What will my girlfriend say? If I'm serious, really serious about Jesus, what will my husband think? What will my wife think? The fear of man. An unhealthy preoccupation with the approval of other people. If that's you this morning, I want you to hear Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can, can, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The only remedy to the fear of man is the fear of God. It's the only remedy. The only way for you to put to death that slavery to other people's fear that dominates you, dear friend, is to be more concerned about what God thinks about you than what anybody else thinks. Fear God. The reason why Jesus is able to be the picture of strength, even in the midst of this really tense confrontation, is because Jesus fears only God. Jesus isn't afraid of the Pharisees. The Pharisees have authority. Yes, they're going to use that authority to crucify him, but he's not afraid of that. He's liberated. Do you see how free Jesus is? He's the only one in this text that's not a slave. Dear Christian, don't you see, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been liberated from a slavery to what other people think. Now, that doesn't mean you just wander around like a bull in a china shop running over everybody because I don't care about them. No, if you fear God, you will care about them, but you're not preoccupied with their approval. You want to please God. The fear of God is the only remedy to the fear of man. Jesus' authority is on display during the accusation, during the defense, during the deliberation, and number four, during the verdict. So after the jury comes back in the room, they render a verdict. The accused, is he or she guilty or not guilty? Most of the time, the jury reaches a verdict and there's a verdict that's rendered, but every now and then there's a situation called a hung jury when the jury's alone in the room for however long and they just can't reach an agreement and they go back and there's some sort of a mistrial or something like that. We kind of have a hung jury situation here in Matthew 21. Look at verse 27. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, 
And neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I, I, I think it's interesting and instructive for us to notice that Jesus is really not interested in playing our games. We play a lot of games in life, don't we? Play a lot of games in relationships. The Pharisees are trying to play a game with Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to answer your questions. But Jesus isn't done. Jesus isn't done. He's going to reveal his authority once again by he rendering the verdict on the Pharisees. So think about it like this. Imagine you're in a courtroom and the judge is about to render the verdict, about to bang the gavel down and render you, declare you to be guilty or not guilty. And right in that moment, you speak up and you bang a gavel and you declare the judge to be guilty. It's not going to go well. But that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this text. Because he's the one on trial, he's the one being accused, and now he's again going to turn the tables and say, let me render a verdict against you guys. Look at the text in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Jesus is rendering a verdict on the Pharisees, on the religious leaders, in the form of a parable. And John MacArthur helpfully defines a parable as a simple word picture that illuminates a profound spiritual lesson. Simple word picture, profound spiritual lesson. Some parables are really short. Some parables are really long, drawn-out stories, but they're all the same in that it's a simple word picture that teaches a profound spiritual lesson. Uh, this parable is about a man with two sons. Both sons get the same instructions, go and work in the field. The first son says, absolutely not, Dad. And then later feels bad about it, and he goes back and works in the field. The second son gets the same instructions, go work in the field, and how does he respond? Yes, sir, absolutely, right away, sir. And the dad leaves, and the son keeps playing video games on the recliner. He doesn't do it. Now, kids, all the kids in the room, look up for a second. Think about this. You ever had mom or dad give you an instruction, and you say, yes, mommy, yes, daddy, yes, sir, yes, yes, ma'am, and then you don't do it? Has that ever happened? If it has, you're just like the second son in the parable. And hopefully, mom and dad remind you that saying yes and responding rightly with your words but not with your action is actually disobedience. Moms and dads, if you're not teaching your children to do that, I hope that you will do that. If your children say, yes, I'll do that, and they don't follow through, that's disobedience. We teach our children in the Bhutto household that obedience is right away, all the way, with the right heart. Obedience is meant to be right away. This second son says he's going to do it, but he doesn't. So then Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. 
Look at verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? Or you could say, which son obeyed? And what did the Pharisees say? The first. Finally, the Pharisees get a question right. Finally, they're right. Speaking respectfully to dad's face and then disobeying him is not obedience. Speaking disrespectfully to dad and then later being convicted over that and going back and doing what he, was, he commanded you to do, that is obedience. So Jesus then drops the hammer on the Pharisees, beginning in the middle of verse 31. He says to them, truly I say to you, in other words, listen up, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the scum of Jesus' day, the scum of the earth in Jesus' day, they go into the kingdom of God before you, Pharisees. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So what's the verdict on the religious leaders? Guilty. Why? Because they're like the second son in the story. They say all the right things, but they don't actually obey. And what is perhaps the most shocking part of the story is that Jesus tells these prim and sophisticated religious elites that prostitutes and tax collectors are cutting in line in front of the Pharisees because they're like the first son. Yes, they responded initially with disobedience, with rebellion, with wickedness, and then they changed. What do we need to learn from this parable, this first parable that Jesus tells? I think there's a few lessons. First of all, all of us have sinned. The difference between the two sons in the parable is not that one was good and the other was bad. Both sons sinned against their father, the difference is that one repented, one changed, that's what repentance means, one changed and the other did not. The same is true for us today in our world. Brother, sister, friend, the world is not divided between good people and bad people. The world is divided between repentant people and unrepentant people. Here's the question for you. Have you repented? Have you changed? Have you turned? Another lesson from the parable is that anybody can come to Jesus. Anybody. No matter how dark your past has been, you can find forgiveness in Jesus. But you must repent. If you don't know how to repent, listen to me, it, it, it's simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Like I said, repentance means to change. So for you to repent, you need to change your mind about the way you think about sin. Instead of just thinking it's not a big deal, everybody does it, I'm better than that guy, you need to change your mind and start thinking that my sin is rebellion against a holy God. And then that leads to a change of heart where you begin to grieve over the sin in your life. 
And then that leads to a change of direction where you yield your life. You give your life over to the control of Jesus. You can do that, dear friend, right in your seat. You can say to Jesus in your mind, in your heart right now, I have sinned against you and I'm turning to you. Will you forgive me? That's repentance. And no matter how far gone you are, dear friend, you can always come back to Jesus as long as you're living. If you've never done that, if you've never repented, put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to do that today. We would ask you, if you do, to talk with one of the pastors that raised their hands earlier so we can help you in your new life as a follower of Jesus. What about those of you that have already repented? You've already turned from your sins and put your faith in Jesus. What lesson should we learn from the parable? Don't be like the second son. Don't be like the second son. Saying you love God and believe in him is not the same as actually obeying him. Let me ask you, follower of Jesus, are you paying lip service to Jesus or are you actually obeying him? The Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. I wonder if you're in this room as a professing follower of Jesus, you know all the right things to say, you know all the right songs to sing, you know all the right doctrines to believe, and yet Monday to Saturday, you live for you. Is that you? If that's you, you're, you're behaving like the second son. You're giving lip service to Jesus, but you're not obeying him. Maybe you're thinking, well, I don't really know. How do I know which son I'm like? The way to find out is how you respond in this moment. If the Lord is convicting you of some hypocrisy where you're saying one thing and doing another, if the Lord is convicting you of that right now, what do you need to do right now? You need to repent. Martin Luther famously said in his 95 Thesis that the, the Christian life is meant to be a life of repentance. One of the reasons why we pray prayers of confession every week is because we keep sinning. We keep having stuff to confess. And so if the Lord is convicting you of an area in your life where you're acting like the second son, then you say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Restore me. And then you follow him. You keep following Jesus. When you reach the point when you stop repenting, then you're giving evidence that Jesus' verdict against the religious leaders is against you too. When you stop repenting, you're in dangerous, on dangerous ground. So brother, sister, friend, I plead with you, repent. May we all examine where are we prone to be like this second son so that this verdict may not rest on us too. Finally, the final scene of this trial is the sentence. The sentence. This is the most nerve-wracking scene in the courtroom when the judge hands down his sentence on the accused. What will the penalty be for the crimes of the guilty? 
After Jesus renders a verdict on the Pharisees in the form of a parable, he's going to now pronounce a sentence in the form of another parable. Look with me beginning in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This particular parable that Jesus tells has five main characters. The master of the house is God the Father. The vineyard is God's covenant people. The tenants of the vineyard are the religious leaders. Just like the master of the house was physically absent from his vineyard, God is physically absent, physically absent from his covenant people. God no longer walks with his people like he did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so he sent, uh, he sent tenants. He hired tenants to care for his people. He wants his people, his vineyard, to produce fruit. Just like in the parable, the master hires these tenants to work the, the vineyard, God has called religious leaders like priests to care for his covenant people that they might produce fruit. And when the time came for God to test the fruit of his people, he sent the prophets. Those are the servants that were sent in to the vineyard to check on the fruit of the vineyard. And just like the Old Testament prophets were mistreated by God's people, the servants in the parable were also mistreated. Isaiah was sawn in two. Jeremiah the prophet was rejected and persecuted for 50 years. Zechariah was stoned in the temple courts. John the Baptist was beheaded. So after patiently sending his servants to his vineyard, God sends his son. Notice in the parable, the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son to his people. And how do the tenants, the wicked tenants, respond? They kill him. How are the religious leaders responding to Jesus this week leading up to his crucifixion? They hate him, and they're going to kill him. As an aside, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's really easy for us to get tripped up with the parables. And right here, we have an example of how not to interpret a parable. A lot of times we're tempted to view them like allegories, and an allegory, every detail, every tiny detail has really important, significant meaning. Parables are not like that. And sometimes people are, are tempted to assign meaning to every single detail rather than just getting the big point of the story. So, for example, in the parable, Jesus says that the master of the vineyard sends his son hoping that the son will finally be respected. We could read that and say, well, maybe God the Father was surprised by how the religious leaders mistreated his son. 
But we know that's not true. We know that this was planned by God before the foundation of the world. In fact, in this own, in this own text, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, a prophecy that prophesied that this was going to happen. So we can't take every single detail and try to assign meaning to it. We need to look for the main lesson. And the main lesson that Jesus is teaching in this parable is that these religious leaders are going to be condemned for the way that they've treated Jesus. Look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. I think that verses, verse 41 is probably, the, these are probably the truest words that the Pharisees ever spoke in the Gospels. Look at what they say. They rightly recognize that the tenants in Jesus' parable are wicked wretches. By the way, dear brother, sister, friend, that's not how the Bible describes the really bad people. That's how the Bible describes all of us. All of us have rebelled against God. There is none righteous, no, not one. The old Negro spiritual asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, it causes me to tremble. Why? Because we are meant to see that we were there holding the nails and the hammer. We, too, are like these wicked wretches in this parable. Religious leaders also rightly recognize that the tenants deserve to die a miserable death. Because all of us are wretches apart from Christ, a miserable death is what all of us deserve. The wages of sin is death. This is what we deserve, dear friend. And Jesus is clear that this death that we deserve is an eternal separation from God because our sin is eternal. We keep sinning even after we die. It's what we deserve. It's what all of us deserve apart from Christ. Even though the religious leaders get so much right in verse 41, they miss the point because they don't realize that Jesus is talking about them. At least not at first. Look at verse 42, when Jesus really drives this home. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, finally they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Imagine a group of builders 
looking for the right stone to begin their building project. And eventually they come across the perfect stone. This is it. And they cast it away. Jesus is saying, that's what you guys are doing with me. I'm the cornerstone. You're casting me away. And yet, that's not the end of the story. This is the Lord's doing. God is doing something through this. You're going to cast me aside. You're going to throw me out of the city. You're going to nail me to the cross. But God is going to do something through this. And I'm going to raise from the dead. And he's going to build his church on me. But isn't it interesting? That at the moment that the Pharisees finally understand and it finally clicks, rather than repenting, they're hardened in their anger and their determination to kill Jesus. What will happen in your heart, friend? Is your heart, your heart growing harder to the things of God or softer? There is coming a day when every one of us will appear before Jesus, our judge. And on that day, there is no outfit that we can wear that will impress him. There is no speech that we can come up with that will earn his favor. There are no expert witnesses that we can call. There is no evidence that we can present. All that we might present would only condemn us. On that day, there is only one defense that we can offer. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Dear friend, are you stumbling over this Jesus? I beg you, surrender to him before it is too late. If you reject Jesus, you will receive the same sentence, the same punishment that was given to these religious leaders. But if you will receive him, and for all who have received him, rejoice. Because there is no tongue, no expert witness that can speak against you, that can bid you to depart from the presence of God because you have been paid for by the blood of the Lamb. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of your blood.